Hello everyone, we are here today with uh, Moji Karimi, uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, Semvita Factory, uh, along with the director of corporate uh, development of uh, Semvita Factory. We are super excited to have both of them uh, here and especially with their vision of uh, helping companies and the energy industry not only becoming carbon neutral, but also becoming carbon negative. So guys, could you potentially uh, give us a, a brief overview of your background uh, and your story so far? What uh, prompted you to uh, you know, start this uh, project? Moji, could we start w- with you? Sure. And thank you for having us. Um, my name is Moji. I'm a co-founder at uh, Samita Factory. My background and education is oil and gas and petroleum engineering and more specifically in drilling engineering. I started my career working at the oil and gas energy services and I spent a couple of years with one of the major oil and gas service companies. And after a few years, I wanted to diversify from, you know, drilling and even possibly from oil and gas and learn about other disciplines. And around that time, I was also getting interested in the startups. I had this opportunity to join a small company called Biota Technology at the time that wanted to commercialize DNA sequencing in the oil and gas industry, basically looking at DNA of microbes in the oil and in the rock and building subsurface maps using DNA data to help um, operators better plan their uh, field development, you know, well spacing, kind of 23andMe for oil wells to know where to drill the next well, to tap into new new reserves. That was my introduction to biotechnology and realizing that a lot of what they have done has now become inexpensive enough. A lot of biotechnologies have now been scaled and de-risked and uh, are primed to bring into other industries to solve problems, such as what we're doing at Biota with DNA sequencing. And that was the initiation of thinking about what else is there that we could bring to the oil and gas industry, which eventually led to the co-founding of Samvita, which is synthetic biology in oil and gas for the use case of carbon capture, utilization, and storage, uh, which we'll talk about today. So that's a little bit about me. I'm going to pass it on to Blake to also introduce himself. Thanks, Moji. My name is Blake Manuel, the Director of Corporate Development at Zenvita Factory. Similar background emoji. Uh, I was actually a mechanical engineer by undergrad study. Started off working in oil field services. Moji and I actually worked together. That's how we got to know each other. I started off working in, in kind of pure R&D and new technology development and eventually kind of found my way more to the, the business and operations side of things as I started to ask a lot of questions and wanted to know why we were developing certain tools. What was the commercial application? You know, what was the financial justification? Did that for, for about seven years and then decided I wanted to, to try a little something different and, and, and left and got my MBA and then ended up switching into management consulting. But in my time working uh, for an oil food service company, I really kind of fell in love with the energy industry and wanted to, to stay in that. So I ended up working at a firm specializing in their energy practice uh, here in Houston, where we're based. I did that for, for the previous six years before joining Symvita. Got to see the inside and out of a lot of different companies and how they operated, you know, worked with some private equity startups and really kind of continued to pique my interest about going off and eventually trying to, to start my own thing or join a, a new company who's doing something pretty interesting. And so I got that opportunity to, to join Symvita and, and kind of continue to work in the energy industry, but also kind of feed on my, my love for technology and new technology and how to deploy it. 
Thanks both. Between the two of you, you, you have a very diverse kind of background, both in uh, oil and gas operations, fossil fuel, and uh, you know private equity, the whole skill set. So I, I wanted to, to ask you to potentially kick off this podcast, right? Let's go a bit, you know, more, um, you know, cloud kind of thinking. So I, I wanted to, to ask you, when you started this company, right? Uh, I guess you probably had some kind of idea of the future, especially of the future of fossil fuels, right? So I know that this is a really big topic. If you could give me like a glimpse of the future as you see it, like a very condensed kind of version, which I guess the same kind of future nuts you to, you know, start working on your current uh, company. And, you know, you think our background is diverse. Let's once you hear about the other team members that we have, then that's really where the diversity is. I mean, we have genetic engineers, uh, process engineers, microbiologists, molecular biologists around the table because of the technology that we're developing, you know, which we could talk more about. But to your question, when we started this company, the initial thesis was around mimicking photosynthesis. And, you know, my co-founder, who is a scientist in that area, has written about it, you know, in a Springer book about self-fueling systems that could use light as a source of energy, you know, photosynthesis. And her research was around what can we learn from this process that we could simulate and replicate synthetically at a scale. As you know, with the photosynthesis reaction, you start with CO2, sunlight and water, and then you produce uh, glucose or sugars and oxygen. The important part in that process was that you start from CO2, as in CO2 is a feedstock. CO2 is not a waste. It's a valuable resource for uh, photosynthetic systems. We started thinking about, okay, if we could replicate this process at a scale, what problems can we solve with this? And the first problem that we found was actually in the aerospace industry to use the CO2 that astronauts breathe out. So for example, astronauts on the International Space Station are breathing out a one kilogram of CO2 each day per person. Right now, they you know capture the CO2 because they don't want it to get the air toxic. Already, astronauts are complaining about headaches because of the high level of CO2. What we wanted to bring to the table was, can we use that CO2 and convert it into sugars, which then astronauts could have as a food source? So that making that capsule, that International Space Station, into a regenerative life support system as a plan B, basically. And for long space duration missions and eventually on Mars, because 96% of the air on Mars is CO2. So it's readily available carbon source. So that's where we started as our first you know, target area and projects. And you know, we, we have still ongoing project in that area where we're building a system for conversion of CO2 into glucose, which we will be testing on the International Space Station next year. This is a project with the uh, MBRSC in Dubai. But the most important part about it was if you could go from CO2 into other uh, chemicals that are made currently by energy intensive ways. So, you know, oil and gas industry and petrochemicals and, and chemical companies, right? And the idea there was if inside these uh, microbes that we have, they could go from CO2 to glucose, can we genetically engineer them to go instead to other chemicals? And we did our research in, okay, what are the chemicals that currently are made with energy intensive ways and are going to be in high demand across the next 20, 30 years? And also there are examples of them being made in nature in some form in plants in other microbes. And that basically led to the starting point for us to go to companies and ask them, do you have a chemical that 
you would want to make from CO2. And then once they choose from our list, then we'll start engineering the microbes to do so. And the example I could give you to make all of this very tangible is bioethylene, which we're doing with Oxy. So Oxy chose bioethylene and we started engineering a microbe that uses CO2 as a feedstock already and uses light as a source of energy. And the gene for ethylene production we got from bananas because bananas in the ripening process produce ethylene. So we took that gene, integrated that into the microbe that is using CO2 as a feedstock. And now we have a microbe that makes bioethylene from CO2. And to your question, why do you want to do any of that is, of course, a lot of these companies that we work with have a very high carbon footprint. So they want to find ways to lower their carbon footprint. Now we know because of the IPCC report, the Paris Accord, that there is just so much you could do with reducing emissions, but that's not enough. And investors are asking more of the companies. Society is asking more of the high carbon footprint companies. So they are looking for creative ways that they could lower their carbon footprint. And in the process, if they could also create a new revenue source, then it's better because then they're going to do more. So in this case, what we do is the field, as it's called, CO2 utilization, which is the second element of uh, CCUS, carbon capture, utilization and storage. You know, with carbon capture, you could capture CO2 directly from the air, from the flue gas of industrial emission sources. But you have to spend money to capture carbon. You don't make money. However, with utilization, you could then use that CO2 as a feedstock and convert it with different methods to something that is more valuable. There are electrochemical methods, there are chemical methods that could use CO2 as a feedstock. Our method in this case is biological. And in order to make it more efficient, we apply genetic engineering, which is the field of uh, synthetic biology. So this is a way to for oil and gas industry to decarbonize and that decarbonization to be not just via, you know, investing in solar and wind. That's one way to do it. And that's a great way to do it. But our approach is let's also think about the existing infrastructure that we have, that we've spent billions of dollars developing in the upstream and the downstream and think of creative ways that we could close the carbon loop, use CO2, use methane as a feedstock to continue to operate, but with a low carbon manner. Yes, completely. I think that's uh, that's really spot on. So essentially, what you did, right, you created all of those molecules and you can now uh, engineer uh, the creation of um, different kind of uh, chemicals using uh, either waste or uh, either kind of feedstock, right, to create it. And then also using uh, CO2 as, uh, I guess, feed, um, as, I guess, feedstocks to really feed those particles to, to, to do all of this chemical uh, kind of uh, transition, right? So can you do that with any kind of uh, initial ma- material? And if we can start doing all of these things, right, how do you see the future of uh, fossil fuels that are right now used uh, primarily to you know, create these kind of chemicals and uh, plastic, for example? Yeah, maybe I could start and then you know, Blake could add to this. But we think in the future, a lot of the use cases for fossil fuels is actually not going to be for fuels. It's going to be as a feedstock for chemicals. In that sense, you know, electrification as it happens will continue to happen. And a lot of technology is being developed for energy storage already with cars. It's happening. And then it will kind of move up the chain into more of a heavy top applications. However, you cannot make chemicals from electrons. You, you still need feedstocks for that. So you have to use the natural gas, ethane, naphtha for a lot of the, the chemicals, which a lot of those end up becoming plastics and polymers. 
So that's a trend that's happening. And those processes are going to create emissions, are going to create CO2. So we have this two-tongued approach, which is we continue to learn how to use the flue gas as a feedstock. And when possible, altogether, it's start from CO2 that could even be directly captured from air as the starting point to, to make the same chemicals. So that will be a way to basically for chemical industry to reinvent themselves and become a biomanufacturing industry. The same process that has already happened in pharmaceutics, in cosmetics, in nutrients, they don't do a lot of chemical reactions as they used to because biochemical reactions are just more efficient way of doing it. And we believe that 2020, this is now the prime time to start doing that for chemical industry, petrochemical industry to bring a lot of the biochemical reactions because what was not efficient before, now we could make efficient with genetic engineering. And just to add on to that in the kind of the greater picture, you know, one of the things we think about is coming from oil and gas and, and being really kind of uh, oil and gas people is that the industry itself can really kind of help with its own image and CO2 problem. And if you think about it, you know, that with the CO2 issue, it's, it's what we're doing is not inherently bad. I mean, humans consume oxygen and, and emit CO2, right? And it's just part of a greater circular economy on our planet. And so the issue is we're producing too much CO2. And really what we look for in opportunities is, and what we provide is the opportunity to close that loop and say, we produced X amount of extra CO2, but we can now take that as a resource and create something else. And I think that's a really hard PR issue for, for a lot of oil and gas people is the fact that it is possible to, to turn what we're doing into a cleaner type of energy by just closing that loop and not just people thinking of, you know, oil and gas being dirty and, and nasty and, and bad for the planet, along with doing other things to reduce the other types of emissions that go with it. But as far as, as climate change issues, it's just removing that CO2. And that's really what we like to focus on and think the future can be for oil and gas, along with, you know, the other non-fuel related things like chemicals and, and whatnot to make plastics that Moji mentioned. It's just closing that loop and thinking of it as a, as a circular economy. That's a very nice point of view, Blake. I think from what say the emojis just before and what you just spoke about, about closing the loop, I think that's what you're bringing on the table. It's another view of how we can act for the planet and as well bring something new in on the market and in the economy. So I think you part of answer the question, but probably Blake, you would be a better place to answer this question because we see a lot of things happening right now in the oil and gas market. So BP, for example, moving from IOC to IEC. So is diversification to renewables the only decarbonization pathway for oil and gas companies, in your opinion? No. And I think it's important to, if they, I always kind of say, it's going to be an interesting to see if the likes of the oil and gas, the BPs, the totals, et cetera, think of themselves, am I an oil and gas company or am I an energy company? And so I think it is important for them to diversify. I, I use the example of here, Kodak in America, were they a, a picture taking company or were they a film company? You know, eventually lots of people pivoted over to, to digital cameras and said, hey, we're a picture company, whatever that means, um, whether it's film or digital. 
And they said, well, we're a film company and, and that kind of got them where they're at. So I think that's something for companies to think about. Are they an oil and gas company or are they an energy company? And in that instance, as a provider of, of kind of complete and total energy, I think it can be important for them to diversify into other renewables and that could really, they could rely on some of their infrastructure knowledge and how to develop complex projects and, and manage those as really key skill sets that they could bring to, to renewables but also that they can continue with their primary business of, of oil and gas because, you know, as we mentioned with the circular economy, but the reason for that is it's great to start with renewables in the areas that it's easiest. So power generation where you have instant demand. The best thing that oil and gas has going for it is one, it's a great store of energy, which is why it's been so useful before. You can keep it down hole and pump it out whenever you want, and then you can store it in a fuel tank or a a gas tank or in, in LNG format. And the biggest issue with the other type of renewables that people and, and hey, it's great that technology is being worked on. The brightest minds are working on energy storage. But that's kind of the biggest issue for them to crack. So in the meantime, you know, we think it's going to be a multifaceted approach. There's going to be oil and gas. There's going to, or, you know, there's going to be liquids. There's going to be natural gas. There's going to be wind, solar, nuclear. All of it's going to be really a combination to get us to where we're going. And in the meantime, oil and gas is going to play such a huge role because of all its great requirements in the spaces where it's hardest for your renewables like your wind and solar to come in because we already have the infrastructure. We already have the kind of energy storage problem cracked. So that's where it's going to really, they should focus uh, their efforts on the circular economy is where it's the most difficult to, to solve the renewables problem. That sounds great. And actually, this is a really good segue to my next question, which is there's all this immense kind of oil and gas infrastructure that you know has been built over the last uh, 100 years or more. So what do we do with all of that, right? Like how does all of this existing infrastructure can be used uh, or repurposed to follow this kind of energy transition kind of movement that is happening right now, especially on our quest to become uh, carbon neutral or even, you know, bring carbon negative kind of initiatives, right? Yeah, uh, boy, that is a, a great question and, and, and one that I'm not smart enough to answer. I, I mean, I think a lot of the infrastructure will play a role going forward. As I mentioned, as, as you know, it takes us a while and we're going to be on untraditional oil and gas energy for, for, in my opinion, quite some time. I think really the, the real question is, what does that infrastructure look like going forward? And do we make any new investments in that infrastructure? And, and if we don't, does oil and gas then start to get cost prohibitive? And so I, I'm not really sure how we can and reuse a lot of this infrastructure. I think the bigger question is just how much of an investment do we put going forward into this, knowing maybe that in 100 years, we may not need it, but we'll certainly need it for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I don't know if Moji has an opinion on that. No, I think I think uh, you're spot on, Blake. And and you know, I mean, what more they can do is to because right now a lot of the focus in reducing emissions is on scope two, which is okay. Instead of buying electricity from a natural gas or coal-fired power plant, let's buy it from you know solar and wind sources. But that's not all the emissions that the company is creating. You also have a scope one emissions, which is for the direct activities of the company, boilers, heaters, you know, the, a given refinery, if you consider, or any other in kind of heavy industry facility, like mining industry, oil and gas. And I think for those is really they have to rethink, okay, how could we 
close the carbon loop. If we're having emissions, what can we do with that? Can we apply carbon capture to capture that CO2 from the full gas and inject it in the subsurface or send it over somewhere uh, to be utilized for other application? And that's the area of CCUS, carbon capture, utilization and storage which could be applied to a lot of the existing infrastructure to um, eliminate the carbon footprint of those. Because I think as we, we go into kind of the next decade, there's going to be more and more focus on CO2 reduction, carbon uh, footprint reduction for companies for us to be able to reach the goals of the you know Paris Accord or the 1.5 degree limit uh, for temperature increase so it's the companies, they're just going to have to find ways. Otherwise, a lot of these facilities today will be not dissimilar to, you know, coal-fired power plants, and which they just have to kind of shut down because it's just not acceptable to the society uh, for doing so. And that's where, you know, the type of things that we're doing in other companies in this area for CCUS comes into play to get creative and rethink basically these infrastructures and what are the parts of it that we could recreate or latch on to other modular units to be able to close the carbon loop. Great, Moji. So uh, if I understand carbon capture, storage, all these things that would close the carbon loop, it's fitting into the energy transition. If if you take this into account and you take the old paradigm of uh, fully integrated oil, oil companies that, you know, they'll touch upon all the journey of fossil fuels from up to downstream and integrating this uh, thing you're speaking about, carbon capture, uh, CUS uh, technologies, and anything that would be closing this loop, this carbon loop. What do you think, what would the energy companies of the future would, would look like? So that's an interesting question. I think they would be less about a given source of energy and more about the fact that they are providing energy through a kind of a diversified portfolio of sources. I guess let's let's go ahead and let's we could call it like emission free because oil and gas could also be emission free. It depends what you do with the CO2 at the end, right? And CCUS enables the production of emission free oil and gas. And I think with the trends that we're seeing with ESG, the societal, governmental pressure on companies, I think companies that are going to have high carbon footprint will have no place to exist uh, in the next few decades to come. They have to find ways to become emission free. And as part of, you know, of course, renewables, but also if they, to the extent that they do produce um, what today we call fossil fuels, it has to find ways to kind of eliminate the emissions from those. And I think the other thing that's going to happen is I think there's going to be more and more integration between what we call today upstream and, and downstream. Right now we have upstream, which is, okay, let's go drill and, and, and get the oil out. And then once it goes to the pipeline, it's midstream and then it goes to downstream. And there's some companies that are integrated and some that are only upstream and downstream. But I think in the future, we're going to have more of an integration where companies could figure out ways that if they're using fossil fuels as a feedstock, have ways to recapture the CO2 and produce the chemicals that could be carbon neutral, even carbon negative as part of their portfolio. And they have to get closer and closer to their consumers to be able to explain how how was this product made? What is the carbon footprint of this product? and have the branding associated with the efforts that they're having for reducing their carbon footprint. Because right now, oil and gas industry has come like become too far from that, in that consumers 
really don't know where the feed stocks came from for the products that they're using. And that's part of the, you know, the issue that oil and gas industry is now trying to explain and explain all the efforts that they're having for energy transition and reducing the carbon footprint. Some are more proactive than others. For example, BP is very active. I mean, their CEO is on LinkedIn talking about it, you know, Shell is, but a lot of the other ones are not. And consumers are not um, following kind of the, the effort that oil and gas industry is doing. But going into the future, I think any, any energy company has to be emission free. Yes, completely. And this is not uh, just a nice to, to have right now anymore, right? It's a, it's a very clear mandate that they definitely need to think about it and they, na- they definitely need to be uh, carbon neutral as soon as possible. So yeah, I'm personally super uh, intrigued to see exactly how those um, energy companies will be evolved over the next few years. And I'm sure technologies like the one you are bringing and a bunch of other, you know, similar technologies that they will either reduce the carbon footprint from the source or, you know, help remove it after it was created like you do. They will be key. So that actually leads me to my next question, which is we see the energy transition really riding, you know, really, really uh, fast, especially during this year. And there are so many investment opportunities happening, right? So I'm, I'm sure the energy transition wave will, will bring up a whole new market. Uh, for a lot of opportunities, maybe more than one market. So I wanted to ask you, you know, both uh, you, Moji, and uh, Blake as well, like what kind of investment opportunities are you seeing uh, the energy transition bringing, right? And then how big do you think this market is going to be? I'll start off. I I mean, I think this latest wave, call it the last one or two years, has done a lot for kind of the energy transition space and, and allow some startups to get off the ground kind of the old adage, you know, not you need cash or you need ideas and you're not sure which one uh, comes first. Uh, I think you're definitely starting to see more capital opportunity for energy transition companies. The energy industry is a very mature business. So investment infrastructure that was, that's, you know, to be honest, that we have currently and what we've had for the last 20, 30, 40 years has really been heavily focused on more growth capital opportunities around private equity and, and the like has been the primary kind of catapult to, to launch any kind of new technology, whether you can maybe build something in your garage or, you know, go make some prototype for $50,000, get be able to run it in the field um, and prove it out and then go and sell that idea to, to private equity, where currently, you know, with energy transition, these are going to be a lot more technology-driven opportunities and really projects that involve a high degree of technology risk and risk in general that looks more a lot more like venture capital than growth equity. And I think we're getting there, but I think for us really to have kind of a, a budding ecosystem and have lots of these investment opportunities is you need to have capital available for people to who have these ideas and make it easier for them to, to be able to launch these companies. Because uh, what what it's going to look like is is a lot more like energy venture capital and and you know to be honest doing hard tech versus uh, software is is a lot more difficult a lot more capital intensive upfront and needs kind of a different uh, investment structure but I think we're getting there you're seeing funds launch it it feels like almost every week you see a new kind of clean tech 2.0 or an impact fund or something around energy transition launch and I think we need we need more of that because as you provide more capital. Um, I think the ideas and people who have them will be a little more willing and op- and, and ready to, to come to market. And that'll provide more opportunities for the technology to develop. And that way, the big companies can really 
put some of this to use. You know, we see it in software. We saw it a lot in traditional oil and gas. A lot of the best ideas came from smaller companies that eventually get bought up uh, by the larger ones. And so I think it's really important to support that startup ecosystem that's developing an energy transition, you know, not only through capital, but also mentorship and other areas of support, whether it's, you know, it's government support as far as workspace opportunities and creating kind of entrepreneurial zones in your, in your, in your city where, you know, you can get people together, share common workspace, come up with ideas. And I just think really supporting that community will be very important to kind of grow this uh, technology. That's uh, that's actually super spot on and uh, it brings up something that uh, you know just came to my mind. Actually, investment traditionally going into oil and gas and energy had uh, a different kind of uh, profile of investors, you know, more about I have this fund and I'm probably investing in very, you know, tangible kind of assets, you know, that they're either producing or not. But it was more of, of an investment into, you know, like an asset. While now the way that you portray it, it's more about investments into companies and, you know, technology. So it's a little bit of a different kind of thesis from the investor, right? Do you think that all of those investors that they would uh, traditionally exist in the energy space and that would invest in assets would do this minds, um, you know, this mind shift and start investing into companies and startups, you know, tech startups? Or do you think that maybe investors outside of the traditional energy space that are used to invest in tech startups and, you know, teams versus assets would probably start penetrating this investment ecosystem following this technology uh, uh, boom? I think the answer is probably a little bit of both, right? Because each one's bringing some expertise. I think first off, it's just going to take a little time for the traditional energy players to, to raise funds. Uh, you know, a lot of the funds they have now, you know, they were raised under the assumption that it was going to be growth capital with a certain kind of uh, risk profile attached to it. And a lot of what we're, we're doing with venture type uh, technology risk is, is very different, but they have a lot of expertise, relationships, and experience with developing infrastructure. So even if they don't take a large footprint into this area, positioning themselves to still provide that growth capital and experience, because at the end of the day, it's going to be an energy project. It's going to have some sort of large scale capital intensive infrastructure type play to it. And I think they'll dip their toe into the venture side a little bit. But I think what you're talking about having other existing venture capital that whether it's hard tech, like for us, biotech companies, we talk to a lot of biotech companies that don't necessarily have energy experience, but are really versed in the core of our technology. That's important for us. And depending on what the core of your other technology is, it's seeing some of those other technology based venture funds say, okay, we're going to do that, but with a focus for energy applications, and we'll start providing capital for those energy applications. But then having the traditional folks, their expertise is still relevant. It's just moving a little bit farther upstream into the venture and being able and willing to, to take on these larger, more conventional looking infrastructure projects whenever they're ready. So I think it'll be a, a joint progress in the, the existing energy investment community it has a ton to offer. But I think we'll also see some new entrants um, who are just uh, a little more versed in, in how to scale up a, a small technology based company. So if I'm to summarize that, and, and I think it's super spot on, we basically need both of those investor profiles, right? Uh, everyone that has been traditionally investing and was active in oil and gas for an energy for all of those years, combined with all of those uh, investors and funds that they that they traditionally has a lot of experience in starting and scale up startups. I think that we, we need to combine those two experiences and then uh, combined they can 
definitely give um, a really big boost to the energy transition that we see right now. So that's fantastic. Guys, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we are usually uh, keeping our podcasts around, you know, on the 20 minute mark, but it was a fantastic conversation. One last question from my side that we're always asking our guests, right? If you could potentially give us two or three companies that you think they are really nailing it right now and are, you know, really leading the energy transition wave, right? Of course, uh, actually, you guys are doing uh, an amazing job and I'm super happy we have you here. But then if you exclude your own company, right, what would be the three, you know, two, three different companies that you think are really uh, leading it right now? Well, I could, I could mention two, you know, while uh, Blake also thinks through his options. So one company that we're really impressed by, by their strategy and really creating a whole infrastructure around decarbonization and CCUS is Oxy, Oxy Low Carbon Ventures. And the amount of projects that they have launched are really amazing and all creative. And they have launched a new website, which is oxylowcarbon.com that summarizes all what they're doing. And it, I think it gives a good flavor also for the type of projects that are taking traction, getting traction in the U.S., which are more 45Q driven. You know, the tax credits uh, are a big part of the business model for all projects for CCUS in the U.S., as opposed to Europe, where, you know, you guys are a little bit ahead of the game, of course, and more established. But, uh, you know, actually Low Carbon Ventures, I think, is, you know, taking the lead on CCUS in the U.S., and then on the startup side, one company that I'm personally excited about is a startup based in Houston called the CCG Plasmonics. And they have a new uh, photocatalyst for hydrogen production. And they're working on de-risking that technology, you know, and, and scaling it up. And, you know, we didn't talk about it here, but of course, hydrogen is also part of the energy, equa- energy transition equation. That's one of the startups that I'm excited about that they're working on that. I guess the third one then is uh, some Vita Factory and I'm uh, super happy that we've got you here, guys. Thanks for the podcast. It was amazing. You've uh, brought a lot of new uh, ideas on the table. So yeah, anything else you'd like to mention to our audience before we uh, wrap it up? No, the only thing I would say is, uh, and I think that it, the same with our company, right? Like Blake and I and the rest of our team, we are oil and gas people. Like we are petroleum engineers. We work in the industry, but we believe in a different future for the industry where oil and gas is still relevant. But in order to do so, we have to reinvent ourselves. Reinventing ourselves is not a new thing for oil and gas people and oil and gas industry. We've already done it a few times. Last example was with hydraulic fracturing, right? Because that's a crazy thing to do, hydraulic fracturing. But entrepreneurs uh, started it and, you know, then we systematically de-risked it and provided new, new ways of providing energy, affordable energy for the world. And this time around, you know, the challenge is different. We have to learn how to decarbonize and, you know, er- eradicate the emissions for our industry. And of course, investors are a huge part of this equation by having the foresight of, you know, moving capital to enable uh, a lot of these technologies that are needed to be developed and uh, provided to energy companies who want to decarbonize to reach their uh, climate pledges. And this is a good thing for, for the industry. This is a good thing for the world. And, you know, we're looking forward to be a part of it and working with the other parts of the ecosystem. Thanks, Monji. We're excited to, you know, have companies like yours actually actively uh, helping on that front. So uh, thanks a lot, both. It was nice having you. And I uh, hope we uh, speak, speak again soon. Yep. Thanks, guys.